Plants capture CO2. What if we could help industrial plants capture it too? Think how we could help lower emissions. More and more scientists think carbon capture is key to reducing CO2 emissions globally. It's one way ExxonMobil is helping industrial plants be more like plants. That's the unexpected energy of ExxonMobil. Welcome into a special edition of the NFL Live podcast. It's your friend Field Yates here, and I'm joined today by Andy Benoit, who is an analyst covering football and really everything tied to the NFL for Sports Illustrated and the MMQB, and also co-hosts the MMQB NFL podcast. Andy, thanks a lot for making some time today. Hey, I'm thrilled to be doing this field. When did when did we meet? Was that three or four years ago now at it, the Combine? It was three or four years. That sounds about right. Uh, it was definitely a February in Indianapolis at the Combine, and as many relationships do, they our friendship started, uh, I believe, right at the JW Marriott lobby, which for those who aren't uh, you know fully privy to how the NFL Combine takes place beyond the 40-yard dash and the bench press, uh, there is a huge... Uh, I'm not sure if social aspect is quite the way to put it, Andy, but it's almost like the NFL Combine is like the one time of the year. It's a, it's um, the word I'm looking for is it's like a networking event for those of us in the football media world with coaches, scouts, and each other. Absolutely. I mean, it's more like really, it's like the NFL's convention, and there just happens to be workouts there. But people would be shocked if they knew how little attention the workouts got from the people actually attending the combine, the media, even a lot of the coaches and personnel executives. It's all the other things that go on at the combine. Yeah, the workout stuff has really become a television event, and obviously the NFL Network and ESPN and many other networks are out there each year uh, have have helped drive the interest there. But to your point, really it's about everything else that takes place behind the scenes. And that was where it started, Andy, and you know, one of the reasons why I've always respected you is that you are a trust-what-your-eyes-tell-you type of analyst, right? Now, I'm not sure anybody in the media watches as much film as you do, not just on your own, but because of your work, you've had the really unique opportunity to watch film with people at the highest levels, including perhaps the best offensive mind in the NFL right now, in Sean McVay. So the film has long been what you have relied upon, Andy, and I think that was sort of the, the, the focal point of our friendship when we got started was just a couple of guys who enjoyed football and not just uh, not just the, 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 the tiny tidbits of it, but the deeper stuff that you can glean when you're watching uh, the All-22. Oh, I, yeah, and it's the All-22, you know, that whole cliche, eye in the lie doesn't, or eye in the uh, sky doesn't lie, I think really what it is about all 22 about film coaches tell you how they really feel about everything by the way they play. And sometimes coaches aren't even aware they feel a certain way and you, you it's action speak louder than words. So you get a lot. If you can learn to watch that stuff, there's always more to learn. I remember when, when we did meet field. Now I'm remembering I was with McVeigh. And this is before he became Sean McVeigh. He was an assistant coach at the time we were in that JW and you came in with Matt LaFleur, as I recall. And with, McVeigh and LaFleur wound up sitting at the same table with us. There's a, more people. It's a big group. And those two guys that night got into an argument about how I think is how you defend the flat out of a certain formation. And it was just back and forth. You know, you do this, and then I do this, I'll do that, I'll do that. And each time the guy got done, they were drawing on a napkin. And each time the guy got done, he would set the pin down like a mic drop, like he just won the whole argument. And, and everything was a finality until the next guy would pick the pen back up. 
So everybody is saying now that in order to become an NFL head coach, what you have to do is have some proximity to Sean McVay. I think what you just convinced me of, Andy, is that it actually means you've got to have a beer with you and I at the Combine because those two, this was, as you said, well before Sean McVay was the Sean McVay that we know him now and certainly well before Matt LaFleur was the head coach of the Green Bay Packers. So we were on to something there. And what we're on to for today's podcast is we were discussing what do we want to break down is let's take sort of a global view of the NFL offseason. Things can change as we learned last year on the eve of the regular season. Perhaps the biggest move of the NFL offseason took place when Khalil Mack was traded to the Chicago Bears. But with what we think to be a lot of the activity behind us in the NFL offseason, you and I decided let's take some time and sort of chew through some major topics. So I'm going to start here, Andy, with some broad brush categories that you and I kind of came up with. And where I wanted to begin was the best plan of the offseason. And when I say best plan, Andy, I don't mean merely who added the most talent. What I mean is... Right. Who had a vision for what they wanted to accomplish this offseason and, in our minds, executed that and accomplished what they were trying to set out to do? Because, as we might know, someone like the Miami Dolphins had a very different objective this offseason than someone like, for example, the Los Angeles Rams. So in your estimation, whose plan did you admire most and how would you sort of break down what that plan was? Yeah, and I love the way that we're shaping this question is your idea to shape it this way feel that's a smart way to do it because it is about building talent that fits together it's not just collecting talent it's not basketball or baseball where one team's shooting guard or one team's left fielder does relatively the same thing on the next team it's different positions are asked to do different things based on the scheme and based on the players around them so when when i think okay who did the best job of having a plan and executing it who fit? Who found players that best fit their scheme? And I'm going to start micro with it, Field, and, and say the Minnesota Vikings, they didn't make a ton of moves this offseason, but they only needed a few simple nudges. And really the main nudge, the only nudge that I think they really truly focused on, was we have to become an outside zone-based offense. We need to run what Kirk Cousins ran in Washington. So that Mike Shanahan-style rushing attack, and then the play, the play action game off of that, that needs to become our identity. So what do we do? We go out and get Garrett Bradbury in the draft, a center who solves the problems of our interior offensive line. We didn't have a good interior line last year. That's why Dave Filippo wasn't running the ball enough for Mike Zimmer's liking. Well, now the line is better. And then Kevin Stefanski, their new offensive coordinator, another good young offensive mind, one of I think I don't know if it was exactly his idea field, but he was very much at the forefront of the discussion of hey, if we're going to become this kind of team, let's get the best coaching staff with the experience that's done that. And Gary Kubiak is out there and available. We want to hire Clint Kubiak, Gary's son, quarterbacks coach. Now let's go get Gary if we can. So adding a coach to a good coaching staff and then a center, I think those little tweaks will make the Vikings what they want to be offensively. I think that this team, more so than many teams that go 8-7-1, perhaps more so than any other 8-7-1 team, could have basically brought back the nucleus, like 90% of it, to your point, Andy, and just sort of fine-tuned and been really good. I wouldn't be surprised if Minnesota is competing uh, in the NFC Championship. I guess my, my one question would be, and um, not to deviate from the, the initial point of the question, but just based off of what you saw from Kirk Cousins last year, um, 
how would you categorize the season, and what do you view as the upside this year for Kirk in this ref- slightly refined offense? Yeah, I think Kirk Cousins was up and down last year, and I think he's an, an inherently up and down player, which is why it's all the more important to put him in a scheme that suits his comfort and his particular attributes. And the reason they got Kirk, and tell me if you agree with this field, I want to hear your thoughts on this. I think the reason they signed Cousins last year, and that's who they went after, is they felt not necessarily that he had a great ceiling, but that he had a higher floor than the other options at QB, especially Case Keenum. And they thought, we have a great defense. We like the players on offense around our QB. At least they liked him at the time. Let's get a guy who we we know what he's going to do under center. We realize he's going to have some limitations, going to have some ups and downs, but we know where the floor is. And, and I think that's why they got Cousins. But when he's in the wrong scheme, then the floor changes, and they found that out the hard way. The Vikings are so good at so many spots, Andy, that they do not need. They don't need a quarterback that that, need to, that needs to consistently carry them on Sundays. And there are a lot of quarterbacks that can do that. But for example, Aaron Rodgers has been a guy that people have felt like the supporting cast has not necessarily been commensurate with his ability or with the ability of other quarterbacks in the NFL. The Vikings are so good at so many spots that, as you said, I think Minnesota felt like. If they could find a quarterback that had less volatility week to week or really even year to year than Case Keenum, they would be in a really good spot. So I know part of the thinking was not just the uh, the steadiness that they perceived Kirk Cousins could bring to them, but also that if they were down in the fourth quarter, that Kirk Cousins would give them a chance to crawl his way back into that game. I don't think that, um, and I think you're right in that like he was up and down last year, I, I, if I had to guess that if in a moment of, of of clarity, the Vikings might say that Kirk Cousins was not quite what they envisioned in year one of his contract. The thing is that that dovetailed when a lot of other players were not quite what they were expecting them to be during 2018. So I think that overall Minnesota fancies itself, and I think with good reason, still very much a contender uh, going forward in the NFC North. Uh, my pick for a best laid plan, and this is very different side of the NFL is the Buffalo Bills and every team wants to win as many games as possible in almost every case in the NFL but I think that Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott did not set out with the aspiration this offseason that they were going to close the gap between them and the Patriots entirely it just wasn't going to happen no team in the AFC East was going to do that but when I looked at the Bills I saw a team that had finally had a cap situation that was devoid of poor contracts and dead money. They had the ability to be aggressive in free agency, and they wanted to, by the time they got to late April for the draft, be able to draft based on value and not only need. And the jury's still out on Josh Allen, but I like the way that the Bills aggressively approach free agency, both in terms of volume by signing a lot of guys, and then also the players that they really believe were essentials. They had to address the interior of the offensive line, and they made him, at the time, the highest-paid center in the league in Mitch Morse. They needed to find wide receivers. So John Brown and Cole Beasley, regardless of how much money you think they are making or deserve to make, they're players that were upgrades over who Josh Allen was throwing to last year, which allowed them to open the door in the draft, and next thing you know, they're sitting there at pick nine, and a guy like Ed Oliver falls to them. And Andy, I thought that the Bills, they built the depth, They built the quote-unquote blue-chip players in this roster, and I don't think that anything they really did this offseason 
hamstrings them going forward. None of the moves put a constraint on their ability to continue to build this in 2020 and beyond. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think Oliver, they just pulled the trigger on as a value pick. You know, they didn't have a huge need at defensive tackle. They took Harrison Phillips in the third round last year. Starlow Tulele did not play up to his contract, but he's only a year into it, so that would have been their other D-tackle. But now they have some interior pass rush presence there. What I love especially, Field, is their last year their offensive line was unequivocally the least athletic in the AFC and probably the entire NFL. And that was immediately apparent. Remember week one against Baltimore, the Ravens came in and they did all kinds of stunts and, and twists and gap exchanging blitzes trying to do anything they could to make those linemen move laterally. And it was immediately put on film. Those linemen can't move laterally in Buffalo. And, and now the blueprint's out and everybody had their way with the bills and their running game was nothing as a result as well. So to go out and get, you mentioned Morris. They also got Quentin Spain, who's an up and down left guard, but he's a, rely he's a decent enough starter let's call him that they drafted cody ford in the second round they signed adrian waddle and ty and secchi some veteran tackles one of those guys will stabilize the right tackle spot so four out of five o-line positions have been upgraded there i agree they're the offensive line if nothing else andy they've given themselves several dart throws at the board other than morse i don't know that buffalo knows for sure if any of those guys will be Long-term, long-term starters, what I mean by that is more than two years, but I think that you're right in that they at least have found somebody who will be an upgrade on Jordan Mills at right tackle going forward, and I think the value of a third offensive tackle in this league is perhaps overlooked. It's really hard to find two good offensive tackles. If you can find a sufficient third one, it goes a long way. It's just a really difficult position to keep guys healthy all year. Uh, The next question that we wanted to address here, Andy, in terms of the... Uh, bigger picture off-season views was what coaching hire most intrigued you? And certainly there were plenty of off-season changes in the coaching and scouting world. So let's narrow this to which new head coach was most mm-hmm. intriguing to you? I think it's your buddy LaFleur field because <laughs> when was the last time that we saw, and maybe have we even seen this in our lifetimes at all? We're both, what, early, mid-30s, around there, yep. 33, I think you're, what, what are you, 32? Is 32. that how old you are, 31? Right. Yep, a student observation. Yeah, well, in our lifetime, have we ever seen a superstar quarterback have a new head coach come in, and the head coach's mission is basically to overhaul the offensive system and put in an all-new approach? Man, that's, that's I, I, off the top of my head... I can't think of anything. If I if I spent some time and dug deeper, maybe I could think yeah. of an example. But in terms of regularity, it's definitely rare, if not never happening. Right, and I mean maybe Ben McAdoo, a former Packer coach, but I don't, and that was with Eli Manning and the Giants. But I don't think that was near the totality that Lafleur is expected to bring in. Basically, in a nutshell, Rodgers has ran a very simplified offense for a number of years. I think he's been as as good a player as you'll see, and yet he's still up and down by his lofty standards. You don't know if he's going to play on schedule or off schedule. Sometimes it's great when he's off schedule. Other times it's an inconsistent offense when he's off schedule. How much of that is him? How much of it's the system? Instead of dealing with all those questions again, Green Bay hit the restart button and said, let's give him a system that really defines the schedule. When it's a simplified offense, the QB does not have a defined schedule as far as his drawback timing and when to throw the ball. It's not as rigidly defined, and I mean rigidly in a good way in this instance, 
LaFleur's system will take care of that. It is very much a timing and rhythm offense, and I cannot wait to see how Rodgers plays in that kind of system. I've been sort of struck by how much people think that Aaron Rodgers is going to be reticent to be on board with Matt LaFleur, like as if he has some sort of beef with him out of the gates, Andy, as if Aaron Rodgers has this chip on his shoulder where he doesn't take coaching well. And I understand that's probably a recency bias issue because of the fact that him and Mike McCarthy did not necessarily or did not reportedly see eye to eye on everything. But I also find, like, I tend to buy into this notion, um, especially in an ultimate team sport like football. A lot of these guys are cut from a unique competitive cloth that Aaron Rodgers is probably much more amenable to being coached hard and learning some new offensive principles under Matt LaFleur than people seem to want to give him credit for. I am not, at least of right now, particularly worried about this. I guess marriage is probably, I don't, I don't know if it's the right term or not. I'm getting, you know, get, having someone to get married during the off season myself. I think marriage is on my mind more than it normally would be. Uh, but I do think, though, that this is actually going to fit more than people actually want to give it credit for. I've been surprised at the number of people within the league that are whispering their doubts about the arrangement. I kind of agree with what you're saying. I think LaFleur is a tremendous coach, and he he is details-oriented. He's worked with superstars before. He had Matt Ryan in 2016. Now, Ryan's a different personality than Rodgers. I think that's where people's eyebrows might raise a little. From what I gather, Field, the Packers had a choice between Josh McDaniels and Matt LaFleur. And McDaniels has worked with, obviously, with the greatest superstar of all, and he knows how to handle that kind of environment. And yet they still chose LaFleur. So they, they must be extremely high on what he can bring in. Uh, probably his, even to a certain degree, I don't, think, I don't know, would you ever hire a coach for his upside? Would you do that if you have a guy like Rodgers under center right now? I, I think, you know something, Andy? I think what I realized with these coaching searches and having talked to guys who either been through it and become NFL head coaches or coaches that I think one day will be in the mix for head coaching jobs is they realize their application for lack of a better term for the job is not just, it should not just be about what they have done X's and O's wise and, and, and sort of what production they've generated out of players um, in old systems or in, in previous tenures. It's about their ability to do kind of everything else, which is, manage 53 personalities, be a liaison between coaches and players, management and players, the business side. There's a lot more to it. And I thought that the fact that the Packers were the first team to hire their head coach this offseason was telling. Now, I understand they had a bit of a head start because they fired Mike McCarthy before the season was over. At the same time, many, if not most, of their candidates were coaches that were not able to interview until the end of the regular season. So I thought this this coaching hire was pretty telling um, about how confident they are in Matt LaFleur. My pick for most intriguing coaching hire is Cliff Kingsbury. And I'm sure this that I, I would imagine this might be like the most popular answer if we pulled it to the masses. But let me give it mm-hmm. a slightly different twist. Um, well, I'll get to the obvious stuff in a minute. But I asked myself this question, and I almost should have put it to a research test, is I don't. I'd wonder: Has there ever been a college head coach who was fired and subsequently landed an NFL head coaching job? With the caveats that the guy was not fired because he was going to take an NFL head coaching job. Like, yeah, it, it's 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 really. I mean, Cliff Kingsbury was fired from his alma mater of all places, where he's not the most iconic player in in Texas Tech history, but he's certainly one of the beloved members of the royal family of Texas Tech football. And and that's not to say that you know he he doesn't deserve this job in Arizona. 
it's just such a unique path relative to where we see so many other head coaching hires. Now, beyond that, Andy, he goes to Arizona where I don't want to say he's deferential, but we know that Steve Kime was influential in the role he played in terms of hiring the defensive staff. Um, obviously, Steve Kime is going to handle a lot of the heavy lifting with the roster, and people are talking about a lot of the concepts that Cliff Kingsbury is going to bring from Texas Tech to the NFL. And I'm not saying that there won't be a lot that will rear themselves, Andy, but I do think sometimes like it's just a simply different college game versus pro game in the sense that like if you're going back and watching some of the things that Texas Tech was able to do against you know, one of the first teams they play out of conference at the beginning of the year when they're winning the game, you know, 75 to 14. Some of that, the schematic stuff you're able to run is merely because you're playing with, you know, varsity versus middle school level talent, if that makes sense. So I'm really interested yeah. to see what crosses over to the NFL. Yeah, I am too, because I would imagine, and I have not studied Kingsbury's Texas Tech offense closely, but I would imagine, especially with them drafting Kyler Murray, they're going to be heavy on quick throws out of spread formations and those related concepts. And the reason the NFL spread game has for many years not translated from college football, and, and now I would say it does translate, but it's not apples to apples still because in the NFL, the hash marks where you spot the ball are right in the middle of the field. And in college, they're much wider. And when the ball's spotted on one side of the field, you get a very different width on the other side of the field. And long story short, that changes everything you can do in your spread passing game, including some of the coverages and looks that you get from the defense. So Kingsbury is not going to have that wide side of the field available here. He's going to have to do some adjusting to the pro game. Now, he knows that, but we'll see how it goes once, it, once all of this action unfolds. And his quarterback's going to be adjusting right there with him. That's a really astute point, just about the dimensions of the field, Andy. I remember when I was working with the Chiefs, we had Eric Berry on for a free for a uh, pre-draft visit and I remember him and I sat down to watch some of his Tennessee tape and one of the very first things that he called out it was like um he pulled up one of his interceptions and I want to say it was like a third you know like a third down play so uh, third and like obvious passing situation but besides that he had this whole play dissected and his his read on the ball started with the fact of of like the hash alignment and it was and I'm like wow like this this guy is sharp and you know, when you're scouting these guys, I wasn't, I remember at the time conceding to myself, like, I got to start paying attention more to the different dimensions of the college game versus the pro game. Not, not that the field is any wider, but just the hash marks make a big difference. Really good yeah, point. Absolutely. There. Yeah. Um, well, in, in the NFL, they'll set coverages to the hash marks, like the wide side of the field or the boundary side. But the difference is in the NFL, that's more just a reference point, like calling the Mike linebacker to tell everybody their blocking assignments. You're not actually scheming around the width of the field as much you do in college. I know last year, Field, I was uh, with Leighton Vanderesh before the draft, and I noticed watching his Boise State film, he always lined up on, on the what they call the boundary side of the field, the, the near hash mark, the short side of the field. And I asked him, well, you know, because you're not going to play boundary or field in the NFL. You'll play off, you'll play weak side or outside alignments. And he said, well, I think it's going to be even easier in the NFL because in college, if you're on the boundary side, you've got more ground to cover if you're coming from that side. And I thought, that's an interesting point. I didn't, I didn't think there was a lot of substance to it. But then I watched Van Der Esch in his rookie year, and he did look like a different pursuit player playing more towards the middle of the field on every snap. 
Uh, great point there, Andy, and Vanderash, what a quick study he was for the Cowboys. We're going to take a quick break and come back and talk about the draft class that might have the most ability to impact its team right away. Geico presents Monster Counseling. Dracula, tell me how you're feeling. No one understands how lonely it is. No one will even let me into their house. I knock and I knock, but they ignore me. Uh-huh. What else? I look in the mirror and <laughs> I don't even see myself anymore. If you don't see yourself clearly, can you really expect others to? I'm having a breakthrough. It's not easy to be a vampire. But with GEICO, it's super easy to switch and save hundreds on your car insurance. All right, we're back here. Field Yates and Andy Benoit of the MMQB and also Sports Illustrated. And we're going to continue with some of our bigger picture topics of the 2019 NFL offseason. And, Andy, I think that the NFL draft's value, I think every almost every team, almost every team at its core would like to be a draft and develop franchise. So this year, is there a team, and we haven't even seen these guys play in NFL games, so there's no right or wrong answer here, but is there a team that you think based off of what you saw from these players at the college level, and then what this team that they were drafted by needs, that has the best chance to have a notable rookie impact? I think it's Devin Bush in Pittsburgh. I'm a big proponent of drafting for need. I think every team does that, and I think there's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. And the Steelers are a good illustration of why. They've had this gaping hole at inside linebacker since Ryan Shazier's injury. It cost him a playoff run that first year that he was out. And then last year, you could see there were still remnants of it. They really didn't have a linebacker they trusted on passing downs, and that changed the way they played. They went with more safeties on the field. They did some different coverages. And they finally said, we're not going to keep playing around this weakness. Our window is now. Our defense is rising. It's in its prime. Our quarterback's in his mid to late 30s. Let's go fill the hole. And they traded up, which, as we know, they don't often do. And they got the guy who I think many feel is the most dynamic linebacker in this draft, certainly right up there. It's funny how you say NFL teams should draft need because as much as they talk about drafting for value, Andy, like every pick – is a blend of need and value at some degree. It's just a fact. You don't, you know, if you have six capable wide receivers and you see a, you know, a, a stud drop the pick twelve, you're not taking another wide receiver, even if he's the best player you have on your board. Like I think there's always some level of need and value that is blended in during the draft process. And and not, and this is not necessarily a rookie equation, but you know. Devin Bush has the ability to fill what I think has been Pittsburgh's biggest gap over the past, you know, one and you know one and change seasons, which is just that Ryan Shazier was the quarterback of their defense, and obviously we continue to think positive things for Shazier, Andy, his ability to communicate, and just I think it's something that's really difficult to quantify, but the ability to tell people not just um, not just be in position himself, but tell everybody else where they are supposed to be on defense, Andy, is one of those traits that Pittsburgh has been sorely lacking uh, for the last, whatever it is, 18 or so regular season games. Yeah, and, and they put a lot of stress on that position, too. They're a matchup zone defense when they're in their base coverages, meaning they start out in zone, and it, that zone coverage can convert to man-to-man depending on how the routes shake out. So you have to have players that not only are, are gifted enough physically to do that, to go from zone to turning and running as a man defender, but they all obviously have to have the awareness to understand what routes dictate that they do that. And if one guy is not on the same page, 
just like with most coverages, the whole thing's going to break down. So there's a lot of physical and mental demands at that position on Pittsburgh. It's why for so many years, rookies did not play in their scheme very often. Even Troy Polamalu, the last guy they traded up for many years ago, he sat out his whole rookie year. He came off the bench as a rookie. I don't think you can do that as much now, Phil, which is why I'm a big proponent of drafting for need. You know, Polamalu came in under the old CBA, but with limited practice time now, especially off-season practice time limited, I don't think there's as much time to develop young talent. And those rookies, they're getting so artificially cheap now because of the veteran contracts are growing and the CBA is keeping the rookie contract values low. So you want to get those guys on the field because they're your most bang for the buck, too. That there are two coaches in the NFL that know what patience actually is. Maybe three. Bill Belichick, Sean McVay, and maybe Sean Payton. Other than that, the rest of them don't have any idea what that is, Andy, because they don't have time to waste time. You're absolutely right. And one of those coaches, maybe I should have thrown a fourth exception in there, is John Gruden because he's got nine years and $90 million <laughs> left on his contract with the currently Oakland Raiders. Their draft started off in a puzzling fashion with Cleland Furl going fourth overall. That being said, I think if you look at the totality of their draft class and Furl himself, no team gave, I I think, filled more holes. Now, not too many teams had as many holes to fill as the Raiders, but I think between Cleland Furl and Jonathan Abram and not, not just in the first round, by the way, but Trayvon Mullen, and Josh Jacobs, who also went in the first round, the running back out of Alabama. What the Raiders did was they brought in pieces that I think the minute they step on the field or inside the building are going to be considered expected starters and culture changers. Um, no, no one had a bigger need at pass rush, and I'm stating the obvious and saying as much, than Oakland. But I liked the idea and the themes that were discussed immediately after the draft of adding high-pedigree players players that have been exposed to games of consequence previously. And I think that's something, Andy, that I'm not saying every NFL player has to have played the national championship in college to know what it's like to play in high-leverage moments. But I do think it can rear itself when you see a player who hasn't played in games of consequence, and you have to kind of reshape that player in a little bit uh, when, when those do when those big games do come up in the NFL. So I thought that the Raiders... Even if people disagreed, and myself included, with that fourth overall pick, that I think they have a, a players that you know at the end of this year we might be saying, are they all superstars? No, but are they all starters? Yes, and I think that's kind of a win for John Gruden and also Mike Mayock. Yeah, I mean they had ten out of eleven positions last year on defense that they rotated personnel at throughout the season. So it's December and they're still tinkering with lineups, which tells you they coaches tell you how they feel by how they use their players. They didn't feel they had very many good ones. And, and I think the guy that you listed their field uh, to go to their offense, they drafted mostly defense, but Josh Jacobs on offense can be important for them because if he's a flexible receiving piece for them, he's someone you can move around the formation. That can give their scheme a lot of texture. And if they don't have that guy, they're really limited because they lost Jared Cook at tight end. He was their movable chess piece last year. They need someone that can influence defenses just by how you line up. And part because I don't think David or Derek Carr is an innate trigger puller. I think he's someone that kind of needs to see the picture a little bit before he knows exactly what he's going to unleash with the ball. And if you can move your running back around the formation, that helps clarify the picture for your quarterback. Interesting. That's something I've, I feel like I, I think I've heard you say this before, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I've seen it a little bit myself. As Alex Smith had some of that in his game too. See it, 
throw it. Oh, yeah. As opposed to, you know, just letting it rip, which maybe that you, you can attribute some of the Chiefs' astronomical offensive success to that change uh, in terms of mindset from Smith to Mahomes. Um, I think, and I don't think there's much disagreement here, that the biggest move of the offseason in terms of sort of like, Earth-shatteringness, if I can make up a term here, Andy, was <laughs> Odell Beckham Jr. being traded from the Giants to the Browns. And it'd be hard-pressed to find anybody who says, like, wow, what a, what a dumb move by the Browns. You can acquire a player of Odell's caliber at a price that they did. It's pretty much a slam dunk. So kind of want to reshape the conversation here. Um, neither one of us has been an NFL GM, but we've both been fortunate to have some exposure to them. If you were Dave Gettleman, how do you imagine he is selling this move? Like, if you had to be Dave Gettleman and sell it to your room of scouts and personnel men and coaches and your ownership group, is there a way that not only how he would sell it, but, like, do you buy what he... Like, if you yourself had to do the sales job, what might it be? I think it would be the addition by subtraction argument. And you say, look, guys, Odell was a, and I don't know if this is true. I'm just, it's the only thing I can surmise that would be the case. You say, guys, we, we all know Odell was a more disruptive presence in the locker room and behind the scenes than we've ever let on. And we're moving on from that. Our offense was up and down just about every, every way possible the last few years. Anyway, he was in and out of the lineup. So we're losing a great player, but what are we really losing here? Because we didn't build a whole lot around him stylistically. I think that's how you sell it. I do think the Browns, I mean, quote unquote, won the trade field, but the only downside with Beckham from Cleveland's side, let's put the personal part of it to us. To, to I'm just guessing what Gettleman was saying, but we know we don't know what Beckham's really like behind the scenes. So on paper from afar, the only downside I can see with Beckham is that he's an expensive wide receiver. Can you fit that in your salary cap? But in Cleveland's case, they've got a cheap quarterback who's on his rookie deal, so the answer is yes, we can. And if you said to someone, hey, you could get Odell Beckham with the number 17 pick, which is basically what the Browns did. I mean, there were some other factors, but big picture, that's what they did. There's not a soul alive who wouldn't grade that as an A-plus first-round draft. Completely agree on that. And here's what I'm going to do in terms of the sales job for Odell Beckham. I'm sorry, for Dave Gettleman on the Odell Beckham Jr. trade. And this, you know something, Andy? I might not do a lot of business if this were my line of work and having to sell this argument, but I'm at least going to make it is that, you know, having been inside buildings in the NFL, although they play 16 games each regular season, and you, generally speaking, would say, I will take the everything else with Odell Beckham Jr. for those 16 Sundays in which he is on the field, there are a lot of things, a lot of hours spent, a lot of minutes spent, a lot of meetings that take place, a lot of film that is being watched, practices taken part in, that you have to deal with a player. And if he's not a fit for you, and clearly Dave Gettleman deemed he, Odell Beckham Jr. and others, not to be fits for the Giants long term, then there are as, as crazy as it may sound, as crazy as it may sound, you need you might that that might be part of the thinking is that as much as we know what he can bring to the table on Sundays, the sixteen of them that he is available, you hope during the regular season, everything else makes it really difficult to live with day to day. And I'm, I, you know, Andy, I, I know that many many people may not buy that, and this may not be a perfect apples to apples example. As a matter of fact, I know it's not. But I think that in some ways this kind of reminds me 
of when the 49ers decided to move on from Jim Harbaugh. And what I mean by that is the results were great up until the final year, right? He had been tremendous. He had led them to masterful success that they had not seen in a long time, nearly to the Super Bowl. But he and Trent Baalke, their then GM, had zero rapport whatsoever by the end of their tenure. Somebody had to go, and ultimately the ownership decided that the GM was going to stay. I know it's not a perfect comparison, but sometimes, sometimes you have to, as you said, add by subtracting. Absolutely. Let's, you know, we all have short memories. Let's not forget the Giants. I, I'm sure this got their attention months after they gave Beckham his big deal. He goes on ESPN, and he with Josina Anderson, who does a great job and gets a lot of really good interviews. And for some reason, little Wayne is sitting there. It never was quite explained what he was doing there. But Beckham <laughs> says about three or four things that you'd never want to hear your star player saying, especially in the middle of the season right after he's gotten paid. And that gets it's going to happen with Antonio Brown, too. If Brown gets 85 catches for 1,200 yards, we're going to forget that he quit on his team in Week 17 last year when they had a make-or-break game going into that week. Uh, but the, t- the the team that was victimized there, the Giants that got embarrassed by that interview, the Steelers who got left out to dry, they don't forget that stuff because they have to deal with the rest of the team who all sat and felt it too. Yeah, I'd love to go through some of the um, you know the moments last off season where guys were making headlines for the wrong reasons, and then fast forward to the games where I think that the tenor of that story changed when a player starts to play well. Uh, every year, mm-hmm. Andy, we know there's a ton of turnover in the playoffs, so. Uh, I'm going to go through, let's let's go sort of back and forth here with a team that we think has a chance to make a leap, a team that we think might be in for a regression this season, and how about this, let's just go with the sort of the leapers, the progress makers this year, and then we'll get to our regression candidates. Who comes to mind for you as a team that is ready to take off? Yeah, I've got the Niners, and it's not just the Garoppolo being healthy factor, but that that is obviously a big deal. They've added some skill position players at wide receiver. In my mind, feel they're as good a team schematically as any in the NFL on offense. I think they're right up there with the Patriots, the Saints, the Rams, Kyle Shanahan and his staff. Those guys, it's a young staff. They are revered within the NFL, and now they've got the players to make it work. Getting Tevin Coleman with Jarek McKinnon back healthy now, those two receiving backs, and the value they got Coleman at is unbelievable to me. And, and Shanahan is so good at this, at designing plays that they feature two running backs on the field, which makes the defense predictable. That's why Shanahan's so good at it. They're going to be tough to contend with there. And then I also think defensively, adding Bosa and especially D four that that changes your pass rush. Now they're a four man rush team. They blitz early in games, but as the game goes along, they become a Seahawks style four man rush team. Now they've got some guys to rush with. Yeah, I think that uh, you're absolutely right on the Ford Niners that they're a team that is primed to make a leap, not to mention, Andy, I think they kind of need to. Um, and obviously, yes. uh, the first year they were you know, quarterback deficient. The second year with, with Kyle Shanahan, that changed uh, when Jimmy Garoppolo got hurt early on. In the, I think it was week three against the Chiefs when uh, Jimmy Garoppolo broke the pocket and eventually tore his left ACL. Unfortunately, as we mentioned earlier on, patience is not really prevalent in the NFL, so I think the 49ers need to make progress. And my pick for a team that I think is primed to make some progress this year is the Atlanta Falcons because they're just healthier. And I know that every NFL team deals with injuries. It's just that's how what happens when you play a very physical and demanding sport. But the Falcons had like an unbelievable rash of injuries that was hard to keep up with at times. Devontae Freeman on offense, 
Deion Jones, Ricardo Allen, Keanu Neal, just to name a few on defense. That's just the beginning of it. There are so many more that we could get into, obviously. Those players coming into the season healthy, and there's no guarantee that everybody on the roster will stay healthy, gives me confidence that Atlanta, who has this sort of uniquely constructed roster with a lot of blue-chip talent at the top of it, um, I'm not sure that their depth is on par with some of the other top teams in the NFL, but I think Atlanta has the right ingredients to make a big leap compared to where they were last year. And I agree with you 100% on that. I thought going in, and I actually told Dan Quinn this, and he thought I was saying the opposite. I said, I, I ranked you guys as the least neediest team this offseason, which he heard is like, I mean, like most neediest, but I didn't think they had a lot of, and he had a weird look on his face is how I figured he heard the opposite. <laughs> yep. But I didn't think they had a lot of needs other than maybe offensive line, which they more than addressed. And then you mentioned those guys on defense field, all of those men right up the middle of the defense. Deion Jones and then both safeties, Ricardo Allen, Keanu Neal. That's another Seahawks-style scheme there in Atlanta, and it's all predicated on playing high and getting downhill fast. And if you lose a bunch of guys right up the middle, if you have injuries concentrated at the same spot and now you're not fast in the middle of the field, you can't run that defense, and that's their defense. That's what they did. They don't practice other things in Atlanta. That's their identity. So I'm with you. Having their just addition by addition, I guess you'd be right. Getting some guys back healthy, they're gonna make that's gonna make the Falcons. I think they could contend for a Super Bowl. I think that Dan Quinn being the defensive coordinator this year is gonna help too. It gives him the chance. I think it speaks to the comfort level that he has. Uh, with the organization now, it just, you know, your first few years as a head coach, you may not be fully ready to be that coordinator. I think now that he is the coordinator, it speaks to where he is as a head coach. And, you know, Dirk Cutter, uh, although he is a new head, uh, new offensive coordinator, is familiar having served in that role previously in Atlanta. So I think that they got an upgrade at both coordinator spots this offseason. Uh, we don't want to be the Bears of bad news, but Andy, every team or every year, there are, there are many teams that do slide. Uh, do you have a team that comes to mind? And when we say slide, Andy, we're not talking about going first to worst, or maybe you are, but like, that's not what we're looking for here. We're not looking for a team that's preparing to crater. Who might be a regression candidate for you? Well, I'm gonna let's let's talk about the Chicago Bears from this standpoint. They're, they're a very talented team. In fact, I think you and I patted each other on the back on Twitter a few months ago, saying they had the least number of holes yes. on their roster, the most of something like that. We both like their roster. What's different with their defense this year is is who's calling it. I think Chuck Pagano is a very good coach. I'm glad to see him back in the NFL. What made the Bears so tremendous for many years, and it wasn't just last year. They were great for several years. Khalil Mack gave them a pass rush that put all this over the top. But for years and years, Field, I've been hearing other coaches say the Bears are the hardest defense in the NFL to play against because of the way Vic Fangio calls a game. And what he does is moves his linebackers and safeties in the subtle, highly detailed ways that make you realize, that, hey, I'm seeing zone coverage, but I'm not quite sure what type of zone. And all these zones have man-to-man elements. So it's a bunch of hybrid coverages with very detailed, nuanced rules. And that comes from Vic Fangio. Now, Pagano, I'm sure he'll, you know, he's going to keep some of that. And I'm sure he'll say, we're going to continue what Fangio built. But coaches coach what they know, and Pagano's had a great scheme for several years too. But it's a very different scheme, and they're going to ultimately the Bears are going to be running that Pagano scheme, and I don't think they're going to look like the same secondary this year. So Bears are still very talented, but let's say they lose ten percent of of their detail on on defense. I think that's a big difference for them, and I think the NFC North has three other really good teams on the rise. 
I agree with a lot of what you just said there. And my, my goal in this podcast is to avoid analysis like this. But one thing I'll say, Andy, is that when Vic Fangio got that, that Broncos job, there were so many Bears defensive players that could not help but express both their excitement for him on a personal level, but also sadness, right? Like he had been one of the stars of a defense that was already star-studded with so many players on the field. Vic Fangio is definitely and stud, stud defensive coordinator, defensive coach, now obviously a head coach. Uh, my pick for a regression candidate here, and you know, again, I'm not saying this is going to be all of a sudden they, they, they go from 10 wins to, to three, but the Ravens, and they saw so many players depart in free agencies, Darius Smith being one of them, C.J. Mosley being one of them, Terrell Suggs being a surprise member of their departure class. They cut Eric Weddle. Now, they did sign Earl Thomas. But, Andy, I remember at one point uh, you tweeted this um, shortly after Eric Weddle. Actually, you know, it might have been before Eric was released, and then you subsequently went and studied film with Eric. So I know you have a good read on his ability is that maybe no player in the NFL is able to make whatever he has physical limitations-wise, his know-how and being in the right place in the right time is 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 basically unparalleled. The guy will always be where he wants to be and can unlock a scheme for a team like very few players can. Yeah, because what they do in Baltimore, they they they're one of the few teams in the league that is not dependent on edge rushers, which I think is why they felt okay with and I don't think is Darius Smith a pure edge guy, but you know that position and then Suggs that probably caught him off guard losing Suggs, but I, they don't ask their guys to win off the edge. They want to beat you by disguising their blitzes. And Weddle gave them the ultimate disguise ability because he covers so much ground in the way he disguises before the snap. So to lose that, there will absolutely be a domino effect. Now, I love that they got Earl Thomas, and what I can't wait to see field is Earl Thomas was basically a deep center field safety in Seattle. That's where he became a Hall of Famer. He's going to be a Hall of Famer one day at the Ed Reed position. Baltimore knows all about that. But where that scheme is built is on the safeties moving around. Like what Weddle gave him, will Thomas move around and accommodate the Ravens scheme or will the Ravens scheme ultimately take on the shape of Thomas, which would be just a more straightforward, deliberate presentation of what you're playing coverage-wise and I, I'm eager to see how that goes. I would hope they'll move Thomas around the way they did Weddle to a certain degree. Jefferson, their other safety, Tony Jefferson, he can do that. But I certainly understand why you're. they lost a lot of talent in Baltimore. There's no question. I understand why you've got concerns about them. And I don't think they expected to lose Suggs, and I don't think they expected to lose Mosley either. And those are big players for them. Yeah, and the last thing I'll say about them is that, you know, Lamar Jackson had some brilliant moments. He really did last year. Um, I don't want to say that the league caught up to him based off of just one performance by the Chargers in the playoffs, but ultimately, Andy, he's got a ton of work to do. And that, that same sentiment can be shared for Sam Darnold and Josh Allen and even Baker Mayfield based off what we saw last year amongst those five first-round quarterbacks drafted in the first round. But Lamar Jackson, I thought, obviously as a thrower and to a degree in totality, had the most work to do. Um, and maybe he and Josh Rosen um, to really take that next step here um, as, as a second-year player at quarterback. So I'll be really interested to see what kind of progress he makes as a thrower this season. Uh, just to wrap it up, Andy, what were your impressions of Lamar? Uh, you know, Having watched him now probably pretty thoroughly through those last, I believe, uh, nine starts it was for him. 
Yeah, I think what they did with Lamar is the same thing that their offense, that their now offensive coordinator, he wasn't last year, but he designed their running game, Greg Roman, who's now running their whole offense. It's the same thing he did in 2012 with Colin Kaepernick. He found a uniquely dynamic mobile QB, and he dropped them in and tailored the scheme around them midseason, and teams were not able, defenses were not able to catch up with that midseason until you get to the playoffs and the Chargers, who were the first team that saw Lamar for a second time, and they just, you know, a few weeks earlier, they were ready for this time, and it looked like a whole different Ravens offense. So Lamar Jackson is a very gifted runner, and I love that they're building the offense around the threat of his legs. They can't run him as much as they did last year. They know that, so they're going to have to find ways for him to hand the ball off, but then also the passing game is going to have to expand. It doesn't need to be a full-fledged, all-field read type of passing game, but they need to ask more of Lamar, and he needs to deliver. And the good news for them is they got a whole offseason to work with him. So I'll be interested to see how it goes. His accuracy was very good at times, but it was a little bit inconsistent, and I don't know if that was from the inexperience or if that's the kind of thrower he is. And I don't know if they would know that yet, but we'll find out. You know, John Gruden made a comment at last year's Combine, 2018. We said something to the effect of we're going to send football back to 1993 or some, some basically some tongue-in-cheek remark they're going to be old school. The Ravens, I think, have a chance to actually be old school this year offensively. Uh, so, Andy, what's the best funnel that people can visit to find all of your content, not just during the rest of this NFL offseason, but also going forward as we get back to the games, which we live for on Sundays in the fall? Well, uh, Twitter at Andy underscore Benoit, or then anywhere on uh, the com, which is SI's NFL page. Well, we appreciate this very much, Andy, and hopefully we can find some time to do it again. In the meantime, continue to subscribe to the NFL Live podcast wherever you get your podcasts.